Hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-host, Maria Wickvilla, the co-founder of, no, the founder, not the co-founder. No one helped you, Maria, when you founded Applicant Lab. And we have Caroline D'Arte Edwards, the co-founder, because she had lots of partners, <laughs> two in particular, that I know very well. That's right. Of uh, <laughs> Fortuna Admissions. And Caroline, of course, was the former admissions director at NCIAD, the great European school, which is missing from this past week's Economist ranking for one of the first times. I have to say the new Economist ranking, which is two and a half months late, is a complete and total shocker. It's probably the most unusual MBA ranking I have ever seen. And I've seen a lot of them since I created the first monster back in 1988 at Business Week. I confess to having been a Dr. Frankenstein who created this thing in this laboratory. And yes, it has gotten out of control. And yes, this monster uh, walks the face of the earth and encourages fear in the hearts of every dean. The Economist ranking this year is incredibly peculiar because so many schools decided not to cooperate with The Economist. In fact, 15 of the top 25 schools on The Economist list uh, a little over a year ago are not present on the new list. And they include all the big and familiar names like Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, NCAD, London Business School, Cambridge, Oxford, obviously Kellogg, Chicago, Columbia, Berkeley, UVA, Darden, Dartmouth, Tuck, and on and on. And so I think the big issue here is why should anyone take this seriously? I mean, I think it's a good question because, you know, once you clear the field of the stiffest competition, what you get is a very different set of schools. Now, one positive of this is that it does shine a light on a lot of programs that tend to get underappreciated and are overshadowed by the big guys. Now, sure, daddy's going to come back and <laughs> things will change. <laughs> but until then, you know, one of the one of the things that always strikes me is is this, and I'm sure Marie and Caroline, you find this in many of your candidates, although I'd be more willing to bet that your clients are better informed than many other MBA applicants going into the process. So they may know you know, how to read a ranking or how to discount one or put it into some level of context. But, you know, a lot of people don't know. A lot of people will see that IESC in Barcelona is number one on this list, and they will get a lot of uh, kudos and good things that will happen as a result. HEC Paris, HSA, is number two. The highest ranked uh, U.S. school is Michigan Ross, followed by NYU Stern. I think people look at these ranks and people who basically are wanting to go to Michigan, NYU Stern, Atchise or IESE uh, will say, hey, you know, this school was ranked one, two, three, four. That's pretty darn good. <laughs> Caroline, how do you read this? And why do you think NCR dropped out? Well, I mean, The Economist has always been an odd ranking and yes. I think doesn't have a lot of credibility and hasn't had for many years. So 
it was definitely one to drop if, you know, in a difficult year when it didn't make sense to do rankings. So I think it made a lot of sense for the schools to to pull out. And I mean, really, the, the school looks ridiculous. The, the, the ranking looks ridiculous now. I mean, as you say, it's great marketing material for those schools who come out on top. And, you know, I'm sure they'll get some great mileage out of it. But I'm not sure it's terribly helpful to candidates. Yeah, and one I mean if you're not a well-informed candidate, in fact, you could lead it could lead you to some very bad conclusions. And um that in and of itself is is not good. Now, if you're if you're a well-informed candidate and you know you're you're looking at various rankings and you're looking at them over time, you can put this into some perspective. You can look at the list, you might get entertained, you might even laugh a little bit. <laughs> and you might discover some programs. Hey, everybody can't get in the Harvard Stanford or Wharton, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and NC out in London, they can't. And, uh, and there are a lot of people who wonder, okay, what are my other options? And here are some options that become much more visible as a result of the clearing of the field. Now, Maria, I know you hate rankings. And Caroline, <laughs> I, I know you don't love rankings, but I think Maria really hates rankings. Yes, correct. Yeah, I mean, well, what I, do you make of it? No, I, I think that this this ranking is is as Caroline said, it's absolutely ridiculous. I think it's you know, yeah, sure, some of the schools might get marketing material out of it. I, I guess perhaps some programs will try to trumpet the fact that they were top whatever in the economist ranking. But I don't know. I think if I were a self-respecting school, I'd be almost a little embarrassed to do so, right? That would be like if I put in my LinkedIn profile that I'm the world's best basketball player. And then there's like an asterisk. And it's like, if you take out all the other 7 billion people in the world, right? I'm, I'm a middle-aged five foot tall, exactly five foot tall woman. Like <laughs> I, I, there, you know what I mean? It's like Maria Wickvila, world's best basketball player, you know, if you ignore everyone else on play. So I, it's the same thing. It's like, if I guess some schools might be like, woohoo, we're number 10 or whatever. But it's like, oh, once you kind of dig into it, it's actually, I would almost be a little embarrassed to, to do so. I, I do agree that it does shine a light. I think one of the reasons I dislike rankings is because I think people get so obsessed with them that they miss the forest for the trees and they don't realize that there are many, many, many ways to reach your goals. And perhaps a smaller local program that isn't as famous can actually help you reach your goals, perhaps even better if you want to stay in a certain geography. But I feel like instead of instead of trying to to draw attention to these less famous schools via some trumped up weirdo ranking, I think we should just come up with like alternate rankings that are like, you know, what are the what are like the best value? You know, I don't know, is it the best value for money schools in this part of the country? And I think some of the rankings do that, right? Sort of breaking it out yes. into, you know, maybe something like real estate or entrepreneurship, where say a Babson is very good in entrepreneurship, right? For example, so you know, I yeah, I think this is this is kind of a silly, like they either should have just tried to base it on publicly available data. And just sort of put a note that like these schools didn't give us the data, but we're just pulling it publicly or they shouldn't have even really bothered. Yeah. I mean, I always think it's a problem when you have a system that is entirely reliant on cooperation from schools because, you know, in any given year, there there's bound to be some schools that just don't, you know, they're, they're angry because their previous ranking uh, showed them to be at a level that they don't agree with. And oftentimes, you know, it's like, 
you know, someone who's hurt at the bar, they don't want to go out with you, you know, I mean, they'll turn you down. You know, interestingly enough, if you search the web, you will find that many, if not most of these schools hurried out press releases to tout the fact that they were ranked so highly and to parse the numbers in the ranking, because, you know, 20% of this ranking is based on student and alumni satisfaction. And they rate everything from the quality of the faculty to the quality of the educational experience, the value of the alumni network, et cetera, et cetera. And so the in the press releases, many of the schools have parsed these numbers, you know, to, to get as high up as they possibly can on the list, <laughs> which, and I can assure you, having read a number of these press releases, not one mentions that. This is a narrow, shorter field of competition <laughs> uh, that does not include schools that we all kind of take for granted as, as, you know, the schools that make the top of the market. So, in fact, the schools are, as they often do, whether or not, you know, you have a weird list like this one or you have a le more legitimate list that includes everybody, the press releases come out and uh, it, it matters, you know, it matters. And there's a certain percentage of the applicant pool, as I said before, that I don't really think is that well-informed. And I'm shocked by it because you would think that in this day and age with the research required, right, to get into a good school. I mean, that's one of the uh, fundamental pieces of of applying to a school, knowing exactly what they offer, what their strengths are, and aligning their fit, their culture, their their academic strengths, their geographic focus, whatever, with what you need out of an MBA program. Despite all that, there, there's, I, I don't know what percentage of the applicant pool isn't as well-informed as they should be, but I wouldn't be surprised to say one in four applicants to the top 100 schools aren't as well-informed as they should be. Mm. You think it's that many, Caroline? Hi, I don't know. I mean, I very rarely discuss rankings with clients, actually. And and I, mean, I don't do most of our, a lot of our sales calls. I occasionally do sales calls. So most of the people that I'm speaking with have already signed up to work with us. And so perhaps the, those discussions are happening before they get to me. But, you know, it... I guess people who come to us are quite serious about applying, right? Because there's an investment in working with us and they're serious about the investment of going to business school. And so I think the vast majority of them have already done their research and have got beyond the rankings. And I think, you know, the rankings can serve some purpose as a sort of starting point for, for research. But, you know, it's very rare that I speak with someone who's hung up on the position of a school and whether they should apply because they were ranked, you know, number five rather than number three this year. I, mean, I think, you know, the value of this ranking is that it shows candidates that most rankings are complete rubbish. And, you know, you need to do your own research, right? I mean, this is ridiculous. So you, you know, don't go by the list of some publication, do your own research and figure it out for yourself rather than taking a ranking at, at face value. Now, earlier, Caroline, you said something that I would love to address because you said, you know, the economist ranking, after all, is incredibly quirky and a bit wacky to begin with, even when everyone's cooperating with it. Yeah. And that's certainly true. You know, there have been 17 economist rankings of MBA programs. And guess whose alma mater has never won? Maria's. Yeah. Harvard has never been number one in The Economist in 17 years. 
neither has Stanford, neither has Wharton. Now, you got to wonder about that, right? And neither has uh, NCAD, although there have been four European champions, three times ESA, IESE in Barcelona, actually, sorry, four times. And then there's been five European champions in IMD one year. But it's almost like you got to scratch your head saying, hey, wait a minute. How can an MBA ranking that has had a 17-year run on an annual basis not have included at the top ever London Business School, NCAD, Harvard, Stanford, or Wharton? How is that even remotely Hmm. possible? Because they're (laughs) desperate for clicks, right? They want to create controversy and they want to get the traffic to their website. And, you know, if the rankings were the exact same every year, it would get really boring. And so... I think they sort of relish being the lone cowboys out <laughs> in rankings land. But I, you know, I've made this comment before and I'll say it again. And I think both of you would probably agree with this. It's shocking that a brand like The Economist would publish such rubbish year <laughs> after year. You know, The Economist is, is held in high regard by academics and serious students alike. It's a badge of honor to, to carry a copy of The Economist under your arm and stroll through a campus because it's a status symbol. And here we are (laughs) with this ranking that comes out every year of, you know, serious graduate management education institutions. That is so weird. It's very, it's it's very BuzzFeedy. It doesn't seem befitting of the economist. It feels more befitting of like a BuzzFeed. <laughs> like what are those editors smoking over there, huh? Mm. Yeah, it, it is It is an embarrassment to the brand. I agree. <laughs> now, in, in other news, we should just point out that all the schools have now produced their employment reports. We've done a number of roundups on these at Poets and Quants that you can look up. And generally... The news for this class that graduated in the middle of COVID uh, was pretty darn good. Salaries across the board are at record levels, never been higher. Placement was down, but not down dramatically. Usually in a few percentage points, there were fewer job offers and fewer accepted job offers, both at graduation and three months later. Do you think this is going to hold up for this coming class that's going to graduate now where the pandemic has really impacted the economy, the global economy. Caroline, what do you think? I think it's probably going to be a tougher year this year. And for the class that graduated and for the for these um, these stats, you know, a lot of the class already had their offers, right? Because, you know, the, the pandemic really started to bite in March. And a lot of those those students already had their offers. And so the employers felt obliged, most of them felt obliged to honor them, although some did renege, but many of the offers were honored. I think they're going to be more wary about recruiting this year. So, you know, hopefully we're coming out of, out of the worst of the pandemic. So perhaps firms will be anticipating, you know, an upswing after the summer. But, you know, I suspect some firms will still be somewhat cautious in their hiring. And so this is, I would think, the class that's going to be most impacted by COVID. Yeah. Um, Maria, you agree? 
Yeah, I, I completely agree for all the reasons Caroline said. I think I think this particular the class graduating a few months from now is the ones that really got really got the worst of it uh, because they didn't get the many of them did not get the internship experience and so they're graduating now basically you know without that and for many people especially career switchers in particular that internship experience is the key to make that career pivot. And anecdotally, I have like a former client who's already on like her third, like she had a job offer from an airline last spring for an internship. Oh. We all know how that went. Yeah. yeah. And then she got, she's already, I think she's now, she then got another, she got a full-time offer when she got back for the fall, but then they ended up reneging, I think. And so if I'm getting my facts right. And so it's like, I think she's on to her, like searching for her third job in a little less than a year. And I don't, you know, that's just one person, but I, I feel like that might be happening for a lot of people perhaps. Now, I can never remember the years in which both of you graduated with your MBAs, but were they good, strong economic years or were they down years? So I came out in, in December 2003. And so that was a period where we were sort of recovering from recession. I think December 2002 may have been the class that was hit the hardest at INSEAD or July 2002. So I, th I think by then, uh, for my class, the stats were fairly strong. But uh, in any case, I was sort of going a, a somewhat different route as I was looking for something very, very specific. But and I, I didn't do on campus recruiting. But yeah, I mean, it, it's cyclical. But even for the classes where, you know, they, they struggle and the stats don't look so fantastic because the percentage of people who've got a job offer in the, you know, within three months of graduation has dropped you know, if you've been to a top school, that's going to stand you in great stead. And maybe it'll take you another month or two to get, get a job offer, or maybe you won't get your, you know, plan A job and, and you'll take plan B to start with. And maybe, you know, you'll have a, um, a sort of a interim step before you do get your, your dream job. But even the people who graduate during downturns from the top schools, I don't think it has any long-term impact on their career. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so either. It may take them a little bit longer to connect, or they may have to connect with something that they don't, you know, they don't love, right? I mean, you may have to. I hate to use the word settle, but in some cases, you know, your ideal job at your ideal company in your ideal industry may no longer be possible, and so yes. you're going to accept something else in the interim, and you're going to rely more on alumni networks, uh, where this is where you know, a school's alumni network can have a very big impact on uh, job outcomes. I know that one of the reasons why the placement stats while down were not down very much is because many of the schools really worked their alumni, made an appeal to them to say, hey, are there positions available in your company for a newly graduated MBA? And I know that at Stanford, which uh, made that outreach they came back with hundreds of uh, of job possibilities that they didn't know exist, thanks to their alums. Now, Maria, when you graduated from Harvard, was it a good economic year or a bad one? I think it was a good year. So I graduated in June of 05. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was, I mean, look, I was also like Caroline, I was doing my own thing. I was trying to get a job in an entertainment-based startup in LA. So I had a pretty, it was a pretty short list. <laughs> of of opportunities, so I was definitely not doing on campus recruiting. Uh, but my under, I, if my memory is correct, I think most people did uh, did pretty well, and I think some people even you know they got that first job out of business school, and within months they didn't like it, and they were able to somehow switch to another job you know a few months later. So I the, the I remember hearing some anecdotes like that. So I I think the economy was pretty good. Yeah. 
So, and I, I think that has a lot to do with it. And it's, and, and, you know, Caroline's right. I mean, it may very well be that if we start to see cases, hospitalizations start falling as more vaccines are in the market and more people get vaccinated, and there is, you know, additional stimulus in the U.S., if in fact Biden can get his big uh, stimulus bill passed, companies may start, you know, hiring back uh, more people in this, in even in the spring, even before there's a full recovery on the pandemic, in anticipation of it, given the amount of money that will flow into the economy from the stimulus bill, and, and given the, you know, more positive news that the vaccination should actually um, make possible. So maybe we're going to look at a much better uh, situation than even we we think. Although I think, you know, generally, both of you are right. This is going to be a tougher year for MBA graduates than last year. The other piece of the puzzle that's been dropping, of course, are all the class profiles. So class profiles are all out. And once you sit back and you look at those profiles, one of the big things that you see is that class average uh, GMAT scores have plummeted almost everywhere. And they've plummeted, you know, a fair number of, of points. You know, Wharton lost 10 points on its average, uh, which is a pretty significant drop in one year. 18 schools out of the top 50 saw their scores drop an average of five and a half points. UVA Darden lost 10 points. UCLA lost 12 points. Indiana Kelly lost 14 points on their class average. Is this a a temporary pause in the arms race for the highest GMATs among the schools? Or do you think we're going to see something more permanent here as more schools go test optional, more schools, schools are willing to waive the GMAT, there's greater questions about standardized testing overall, both at the undergraduate and graduate level, Maria, what do you think? Wow, this is a great question. I mean, who knows, right? I feel like I'm trying to look at the list that you just gave. And I know off the top of my head, I remember that Darden was one of the schools that extended their round three. They were one of the first schools to really extend that round three into the mid-July period, which is pretty, pretty unheard of. And I think they were they were test optional, like like I think you said. So, you know, I would expect I would expect the schools that went test test optional to, for them to for that GMAT score to go down because obviously they're basing the admissions decision on other things, whether or not that's permanent, you know, it's interesting because as we started at the top of this podcast, we were talking about how the economist, you know, the economist rankings this year, so many schools sat it out. Yes. Uh, and so maybe that also this year, it gave them the, that breathing room to not have to care so much about the GMAT because they're like, well, we're not going to participate in the rankings anyway. So let's just, you know, let's just sort of ignore it or not make it as important. So I, I would love for this to be something that stays forever, but I suspect that it won't because the arms race is really driven primarily by the rankings. And so once the rankings go back to normal, I wonder if that that truce will quickly be forgotten. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, U.S. News is really the most important ranking in the U.S., just as the FT is the most important ranking in Europe and Asia. And in the U.S., with that U.S. news ranking, that's that's fairly heavily weighted class to average GMATs or GREs. 
you know, you look at the two-year trend, it's even more dramatic, particularly obviously at the second-tier schools, like a UC Davis down 28 points on their class average. Boston University down 26, Rice University down 21, Penn State down 19. So it's not only impacting, you know, Wharton and Virginia and UCLA and other, you know, top schools. It's also obviously impacting the second and even third tier uh, where the declines tend to be even steeper. Caroline, do you think, I know the NCAA is a school that isn't you know, all hell bent on get, on GMAT uh, scores, thankfully, mm. unlike on, on uh, many of the U.S. schools, you get a more holistic review, I think. Uh, do you see a more permanent change in the value that schools uh, attach to GMAT and GRE scores in admissions or not? I, I fear that it's temporary, unfortunately. I mean, I think it's largely driven by the fact that, you know, the schools were obliged to be much more flexible given the circumstances and candidates just weren't able to take the test or were not able to take the test in normal circumstances or weren't able to retake the test if they'd taken it once and thought they hadn't done as well as they should have. So, you know, once test centres are all reopened and people are able to take the test as normal, I suspect the arms race will return. But it's, uh, yeah, it, it's not it's not a good thing, but I, I think it's a difficult one to get out of because of how the rankings are so GMAT driven. And, you know, it, it, it is all, it's also tough for the schools, right? I think, you know, that there's, there's also an, uh, at a time, especially, you know, right now, where there are so many candidates applying, the competition is very intense. Candidates also know that. So people invest more and more in taking the test and, and doing well on the test to stand out on that. So, you know, I don't think you can blame it all on the schools. I think it's coming from from all sides. That that's that that arms race is being driven by by the candidates, by the schools, and by the 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 rankings publishers. Yeah, definitely true. Well, there you have it. Okay, uh, we have a wacky ranking from the Economist. Salaries are up for the first COVID class, although placement is down. We think it's going to be a different picture this year. And then those GMATs, well, you know, you might be able to get away with a lower GMAT right now, even though the competition is, uh, we think, fairly stiff in terms of the numbers of people who are applying to MBA programs this year. So there you have it. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. Join us next week for Business Casual. Thank you, Caroline and Maria. A pleasure as always.